Hello and welcome to The Spectator's Books Podcast. I'm Sam Leith, the literary editor of The Spectator, and this week my guests are Adam Nicholson and Tom Hammock. Adam is the author and Tom is the illustrator of a glorious new book called The Making of Poetry, Coleridge, The Wordsworths and Their Year of Marvels. It's 1797 to 1798, the year that Coleridge and Wordsworth were hanging out together, not as everybody thinks the Lake District, but in the Quantux. And this was the year that led up towards The Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner and The Prelude and Lyrical Ballads and Kubla Khan and much else besides. Adam, what made you decide to do this year? What put you on this subject? I'm always interested in what... Uh, well, I had, uh, I had previously uh, written a book about Homer and the book about Homer had been utterly vast, far too vast for its own good. You know, it stretched from Ireland to Manchuria and... 20,000 BC to Chicago today and it was just as kind of gopping great baggy elephant of a thing and I thought wouldn't it be good to really concentrate have a fine very fine very close focus on some equally significant moment and uh, I knew about this year you know this year is the most famous year as you say all those poems came out of it and and it was also it had all the kind of Aristotelian unity is in place, you know, it was one place, it was one time, it really is one subject, one drama enacted through the course of the year. And so I thought this would be a very good laboratory, really. Can you, can you understand great literature from really embedding, really, really being close and intimate with the moment in which it was made? And so you went to live there? I mean, one, one I would did. think this isn't the obvious kind of way to get you know, access to a poem. You think you read the poems. What, yeah. what? Well, Coleridge has this great, great idea. I mean, it's not, it's not his idea. But he, he takes up the great idea that thought is corporeal, that thought is something that the body does. And uh, he was a great fan of David Hartley, the 18th century uh, philosopher, who his sort of governing idea is that in your life through the world you experience, we all experience, the human being experiences through their senses the vibrations of reality. These vibrations come into you and sort of vibrate up your nerves and into your brain and lodge there as this marvellous word, vibration calls, <laughs> which are little memories of vibrations you've known and who you are is the sum of all the vibration calls that you have lodged and so the thing that follows from that is that if you're to know about how something is thought really then you must also vibrate with that same world you know be corporeal with it actually be out in the weathers out at the times of year so out in the uh, elation and the suffering and the whole thing that creates what what might be great poetry does that make sense to you sam it does make sense to me it's it still seems kind of fascinatingly you know well, I wanted to say demented, and that's not, not the right They're thing, good. but, but the immersion. Really there is something good. slightly <laughs> demented about the immersion, the degree of immersion. I want, Tom, when did you come on board? Was there, you know, did Adam say, right, we're going to do this thing, and, you know, you're going to come and supply these beautiful prints or woodcuts I, or however you, you made them? I came quite late on to it. I think Adam had seen my work and 
very kindly like my work. We should say the book is is lovishly illustrated with Tom's coloured woodcuts, 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 yeah, and a few paintings. And I, I think Adam saw through look, knowing my work that I was for my sins a romantic, and he thought that there might be a good match here. And I went down for this extraordinary trip down there, and Adam invited several friends to almost reenact the way that Coleridge and Wordsworth, well, Coleridge especially, invited everyone down, and they all got on very well. Oh, so you were one of his, you called him a flock of, his, of nightingales. Exactly, <laughs> I, was a, I was a little nightingale. <laughs> Who did we have? We had you. Yeah, we, we had, had a bird maniac. Lovely bird maniac, Tim, Tim D. A professor of English literature. Yes, I wanted you to pony up who these people were. Uh, yes, OK, so Tim D, who's a, a radio producer in Bristol and yeah. um, did um, the, poetry, radio, the poetry, poetry please. show forever. Yeah. And then we had uh, Alexandra Harris, who's written marvellously about modern romanticism and the English and the weather and, and all that. place, yes. And place. And then uh, an American, uh, Jacob Weisberg, who uh, runs Slate, the um, podcast, it Washington Post has podcast. Has a heaven, heavenly brain. And has the most incredible brain. And these people just talked and 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 talked. And we might as well have been in a club in St. James. <laughs> we did some walking. <laughs> yeah, but it was chat, wasn't yeah, it? And yeah, I think chat. that one of the things about romanticism... There's a certain nervousness in your account of it. You say, you say kind of, I was worried that they might not actually be noticing the landscape at all. <laughs> After a while, we, I took them for a walk in the moonlight, made sure that we were there on a, on a full moon. And so after a while, the talk dimmed and it all people started to become absorbent in the required... Mm. For the wonderment, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it worked. It worked. But can we just sort of zip back to the Coleridge words? Because one of the things that you... Points you make is, you know, we look at them now as these kind of storied monuments of English verse and it's very hard to see them sort of forwards. And they were very, very young. I yes. mean, to some extent... You know, you you have the difficulty because you like me. You know, we're, what you you're not what in you your say? you're not in your late twenties anymore, Adam. Um, <laughs> no, they were very young. Coleridge was twenty four, Wordsworth or twenty four, twenty five. Wordsworth was twenty seven, twenty eight, and Dorothy, Wordsworth's sister, was almost exactly halfway between the two. And it is about young people. This story. It's about people who haven't quite found it yet and uh, found whatever it is yet and have tried all kinds of ways of being, have both been revolutionary in France and and in this country and yet have become rather disenchanted with the idea of revolution, have yet to really reach uh, the means of saying that they feel is in them, to find their voice is what people say. And in one way, the story of this year is about two young men of genius finding their voice. I mean, you mentioned this revolution, you know, being some of the sort of turbulence the 1790s being behind them or early 1790s being behind them there. But th- there it's is a sort of political, behind. there is a kind of political strand in it. You know, I mean, you talk about even the way that they find their voice being a way of doing politics by other means in some ways. I mean, yes, I mean, it's hugely political. It's political because politics have come to seem utterly inadequate. Revolutionary politics have turned into tyranny in France and the French revolutionary regime is now invading entirely innocent countries, Switzerland, and murdering people there in the way that all the Ancien Regime uh, governments had always done. 
and the English repressive pit regime, gagging orders, uh, preventing people from gathering, uh, from printing, from from expressing uh, radical thoughts. And so both ends of politics have become inadequate. And then this is, in a way, a retreat from politics. But as you say, it's also a kind of recognition that it's, it's in fact a kind of Orwell idea that only if you have the language right can the politics and the society be right. That only if you actually strip away the guff of uh, revolutionary rhetoric or right-wing rhetoric do you find yourself at a point where language can be true to the experience of those who are usually not heard, the poor, the ill, the sick, the mad and even the people alone or even your most in the inward dimensions of your own psyche need to find a kind of different language from the language that is usual in in podcasts <laughs> or, or or in or the usual political more... discourse you know and so in that way it's profoundly radical to dispense with the 18th century ideas of of elegance, really, of cultivated sort of decorum refinement and, poetry, and decorum yeah. and to move to the awkward and the uncomfortable and the half-said and the half-known and that somehow there, in those semi-conditions, you'll find a truth which civilization obscures. Yeah. To how much... You know, and that's why it's exciting, really. I mean, I, well, I you, think you it's make incredibly a lot of money exciting. Don't you? I mean, there's, there's a, a lot of which I found one of the most kind of fascinating bits, but it's you, you, you reproduce these much, much scratched over, particularly with Wordsworth, sort of Palimpsest-style manuscripts where he's trying to get, you know, a pentameter right. Well, but, but it's not, but it's it, not it's, only it's that. It's not right, only, you know, it's not um, a technical rightness. It's like there's a wonderful one where he's talking about walking along a road, a dusty road, which a cart has gone along before, and, in the, and the rim of the cart has nails in it. And so, of course the turning wheel impresses its nails into the dust and he again and again the wheel turns sort of saying nothing and sure enough in Wordsworth's notebook he just writes it again and again the wheel turns I can't remember the exact word but the wheel turns and the nails are in the dust and he crosses it out and the, the, wheel, the nails are in the dust and the wheel turns and somehow the wheel turns and the nails are in the dust and, and it literally an entire page of this and I, I think I say in the book it's a you feel the sort of the thing in him. It's so terrible not to get the wrong metaphor here, but desperate to get it out, desperate to kind of get it into the world, into the expressed world. And it, I, it's very moving, that, I think. Also, I mean, there's always, as you go through this and you see him attempting to find a, a, you know, a, a much more conversational, straightforward idiom in poetry, which was you know, obviously a great breakthrough of the lyrical ballads, Attend to the poor and halt. You know, think about bit one with the universe. One does slightly remember. I love the way you say that bit one. Bit one with the universe. All that sort of courage you start. (laughs) But then he, you know, you do sort of remember at the beginning of the book, which we can't quite get around. You know, here is a very clever, crazily ambitious man who, you know, abandons the mother of his love child. Can we think of any modern analogues? And comes to. You know, is he not a creature of, of sort of great egotism and privilege? Yes. Does it make <laughs> you like him less? You call him a friend somewhere. You say, I think of him now, I know him so well. I think of him as a friend who makes mistakes. I do. But it's... it's you know, I, don't, I mean, I think that... Uh, I think to require niceness me. of Wordsworth is a sort of ludicrous thing, you know. It's like... 
well, I don't know. It's, it's, it's mad to think that someone who has such a giant conception of himself could possibly be nice. I mean, what has niceness got to do with it? Did he have a giant <laughs> conception of himself early on? Yes, he did. When he went to Cambridge, he refused really to do any work oh, yeah. at all. You know, he thought he was far beyond all that. And instead of being at Cambridge, he went off walking 3,000 miles yeah, to, through to Europe, Switzerland yeah. and back. And, you know, if you can judge his childhood from the prelude, from what he, what he wrote later about his childhood, his own idea of himself rowing on a lake or, or skating or going hunting in the tree, in, you know, in the woods, he is always enormous. Mm. And I mean, we know people like this, don't we? You know, who think of themselves are enormous, and because of their enormous view of themselves, are constantly baffled. It's baffled, but that why aren't you taking me more seriously, Tom Hammett? For God's sake! Mm. <laughs> and Coleridge is a very different. Sort of, I mean, I find Coleridge a more attractive character. I don't know whether Everybody you do. Everybody does. Yeah, yes. We all but, do. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> we all do. But you just, except, for, except for me. Except for you. you I love Wordsworth. You love Wordsworth. But someone said that Adam found me his Coleridge and me, and for his Wordsworth, which oh. I thought was quite sweet. In what way was that? I don't know. Who, who said that? Someone recently said No, that. but in what way are you like Coleridge? Well, just, I don't know, because I... I... Kind of pantheist. <laughs> <laughs> pantheist, man. Pantheist, man. <laughs> what did Coleridge give Wordsworth and what did Wordsworth give Coleridge in this? I mean, they go different ways, but at the core, core of this. Yeah, it's a very good question. Coleridge begins the year a great success you know he's things have gone largely very well for him that he's a published poet and a very admired uh, lecturer and preacher and a slightly less successful pamphleteer journalist but you know he's he's feeling huge and he's romping through the world powerful Wordsworth is in broken, reduced, failed condition guilt-ridden about uh, his uh, child and her mother he abandoned in France and the only person who is really sustaining him at the beginning is Dorothy, that she is sort of saying to him, you are the great poet, you need to become the great poet, I know you are. And Coleridge takes him up and and, and also says that, I know that you are the greatest man alive, I know you are the greatest poet who has lived, maybe you and Milton, not Shakespeare, uh, but you and Milton, you're the two, and you can do something great. And I think Coleridge gives him that incredible uh, embrace, the embrace of certainty, the kind of the love. Which is odd coming from Coleridge, for whom certainty was... No, but Coleridge, Coleridge marvellously says, I hate the word but. Mm, Everything and, has to and, be an and. and, yeah. and. Everything has to be an and. And, Co- and Wordsworth is this enormous and arriving in his life. And of course he sucks him up, so to speak. And, and gives him the idea of it's... Uh, it, Coleridge is very seriously Christian uh, through, throughout all his life and definitely believes in a kind of God-soaked universe, a God-soaked world of which we are just kind of, in a way, pale reflections and everything is that is is just a pale reflection of the Godhead. And so this one life that he calls it, capital O, capital L, is something that is in, infused into everything. And he gives Wordsworth that idea, the giant connectedness of things, you know, that, that Coleridge is the great poet of connectedness, really, about, about love, really, the poet of love, even. And he gives him that. Wordsworth, I think, drains Coleridge. 
Coleridge writes great poetry in this year, but after this year does not. After this year, Wordsworth goes on to write the prelude and the great lyrics that he wrote in, in the following winter. And so the structure of the year is really a sort of terrible crossing, I think, that, that Coleridge actually gives Wordsworth everything he needs and Wordsworth takes from Coleridge everything he needs. Oh, he's a monster. Monster. <laughs> he's like picking up a child. And, no, fair uh, enough, fair enough. And, uh, and what about Dot? Or Dot. Dolly, is Dolly. Dolly. We, we call her Dot here, obviously. Um, Dot Wordsworth. Dot Wordsworth. Yes, obviously, I know important you Important contributor. You know, she's... There's a, there's a terrible metaphor, isn't there, where Wordsworth apparently gratefully says, you know, she's a sort of trickle across the mighty path through which I walk, a sort of stream that nourishes... Um, mm, you're the flowers on my mountain, or whatever it is. Yes, yeah. exactly. But she was obviously very, very talented and kind of important in words, was not only emotionally sustaining him. I and mean, what? Yeah. Where do you see her fitting in? She has a very she... interesting double role. I think there is that one thing. She is the great sustainer. She's uh, the letters she writes to her friends are sort of very controlly. You know that she understands about how houses work, and she loves a kind of well-organized landscape, and she does all the laundry and cooking, and organizes the servants, and definitely sustains these or this great man anyway in that entirely practical way. She also has the thing that people have celebrated about her, uh, you know, since Virginia Woolf, a sort of incredibly acute and fine response to the details and actualities of the natural world. And so these two enormous grand <laughs> visionaries are somehow given a, a a reality, a specific reality by her. By her, her. You, you say at one point that actually she, she is the one who gets them to see. Yes, I mean, I think that might... Uh, yeah, in a way. But it's, uh, it's overstated that, isn't it? Because yeah. clearly they're seeing... You know, and Coleridge is a great seer too. He doesn't need Dorothy to tell him how to see. Mm. I think interesting. Someone said to me the other day, "Do you think Wordsworth was colour blind?" Mm. And I think he may well have been colour colour blind. He hardly talks about colour, but what he does is listen. He's always listening. He listens to the wind, to the sea, to rivers, to leaves. You know, he, it is a great. Uh, our, how would you say that word? Oral mm. uh, imagination. Hooves, hooves on the ground. Yeah. Uh, hooves, hooves on the ground yeah. in all of that. And people walking behind him at night, you know, you can hear these uh, ghostly mm. uh, steps behind him and so on. And so I think that Dorothy is both central and designated by Wordsworth as his inferior. It is an intriguing aspect of this time and this moment that these two apparently deeply revolutionary people don't have any uh, hashtag me too dimensions to note <laughs> <laughs> at all. Yes. You know, all the women are suppressed in the story. But it's very dark, this. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's enough to wait, make one weep, really, when, you, you know, when later she is destroyed by this and destroyed by him later on. And, you know, at one point you can completely understand that as brother and sister and they've had this very rough childhood and, and you talk about, well, them not, of course, having an incestuous relationship, but the fact that he, he uses wonderful description of, you know, her walking in the, inside his coat with him. Mm. And I think now, and especially as a woman reading, reading this, however kind of revisionist you are in some ways, it's very, very dark even, even now. 
Yes, and famously, I mean, the incident which happens, and it's not in this book, but it happens later when he gets married to their great friend, their shared great friend, yeah. Mary. The night before he gets married, he gives Dorothy the wedding ring to wear all Do, night. I can't, it's too unbearable. Yeah. And she, on the morning of the wedding, collapses yeah. and, and can't, can't yeah, speak or, or no. Tom, when you were creating the art for this, I know you used some of the woodcuts made with wood from the estate. Yeah. Is that right? We went down and um, I got my chainsaw and it didn't work, so we had to sort of refuel it and everything. And we cut some all sorts of branches up that had already fallen. And I then took them to a friend of mine who's a wonderful carpenter and he made these very rough and ready, made them into planks and then glued them together. And we I then carved into them. And some of the wood was full of holes and weevils and very uneven. But actually that kind of gave a kind of a, a wonderful contemporary, as far as their time was, like all the chaps and woodcuts, roughness to them. And using a sort of Japanese method with very thin Japanese paper, we we then inked up these plates and literally the burnisher and a wooden spoon transferred the image on and the ink on the on on the wood onto the paper so they're very rough and ready and rather clunky and but the atmosphere within the wood i think helped conjure the wind and the snow and the uh, and and the atmosphere of the place and what did you find yourself responding to when you were making these cuts were you sort of did you see see yourself as responding to the place or to adam's text as some because sometimes you're illustrating you know passages from adam rather than yeah you know, scenes from Coleridge and Wordsworth. I think a bit of both. So, 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 I was very aware that I wanted to try and create a parallel universe and not actually illustrate Adam's writing all the poems. Although that's very difficult because I'm putting pictures in a book. But I hope they are oblique enough to be their own. They're, you know, they're quite peculiar. A lot of the pictures, and but they do also very much relate, I think, to what Adam's writing about and to things going on the poems so there might be something very direct like frost at midnight which is I, i've created a sort of 1930s house on the edge of the sea but with lovely color that you get in the middle of the night with the moon or there might be a more uh, more oblique with a picture like that i do for the tale of the ancient mariner which is a a very dystopian image of a of a man sailing out across the universe in his in his uh, sort of junk that he's kind of made himself. Did you find yourself feeling the same attitude towards the different cabin? You said your team Coleridge, the same attitude towards the characters in the story and towards the development of their poetry. That Adam did. Do you think, or did you find yourself going, "No, he's, I don't share that view." I think. I mean, do you, no, do you find yourself I, arguing with the book? We did argue a bit, but I think. I think. I mean, I don't know. I don't. You know, I'm uh, I'm a great reader, but I don't I don't know enough, and and so this was uh, new territory for me, and I found it very intoxicating, and I fell in love with many of these people, especially Dolly and and especially Coleridge, and I grew to also hugely I was in awe of Wordsworth by the end, you know, Tintern Abbey, and you know you read that poem, and you know if you're not, it's pretty mind blowing. <laughs> it was good. It was very good. But it was. I, I loved trying to, and especially with what Adam did with getting getting his mates down. I did love trying to conjure up a sense of love and community and togetherness 
within my images if that's at all possible so early on there's a there's a picture of the two families throwing stones into the sea and the colors are very expressionistic and all completely wrong and not naturalistic but i hope through the use of this rather flat color and these very simple silhouettes you get the feeling of almost something happening rather like a a slightly out of focus polaroid sort of beyond the horizon so it was, and it was also very challenge, very challenging for me because I was. While I often um, uh, poetry helps me with a narrative for a for a painting, this was altogether. I had to get it done very quickly, and also I had a I had to perform in a way that 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 I'd never had to do before. You know, I've never done a commission in my life. But we started off. We started off with. We started off having having eight pictures, and there were going to be, I think, eight black and white woodcuts. And Harper Collins came. And Harper Collins came to the studio, and they saw what we were doing. And not uh, William Collins and the, the team, the lovely team from William Collins. And we managed to persuade them to do full color throughout, which I think is very rare. Just just the the making yeah, of the book, which I'm very interested. In. I mean, the, you you don't get books like this anymore, where you have images cut all the way through the book rather than just in you know a big clump in the middle and Adam has spent a lot of time trying to work out the order so that at least one of my pictures was close to referring to what he was writing about in the text and then the end papers are lovely I think where I've got a, a sort of, of a book. good thing to give give somebody yeah it's nice and it's a lovely thing I think I, I want to just return to this question of the landscape because one of the things we kind of sometimes think of the romantic poets as, you know, presenting this very beautiful, very sort of idealised almost landscape, I mean, as precursors of what's been derived as the lone enraptured male. But... Did you invent that phrase? No, Kathleen Jamie. <laughs> yeah. Do you all know that's the phrase? Is I Kathleen do, Jamie no, attacking... The brutal McFarlane The brutal attack, attack on McFarlane. Um, yes, as it hurt McFarlane. him so much that I do know that. It was unbelievably harsh... Not surprised. It was it was pretty pretty harsh, but it wasn't applied at the time to Wordsworth and Coleridge. But that that sort of the paradigm was sort male. of yes, it's interesting. Yeah, a bit. I mean, that sort of Tintin Abbey is you know is a lone enraptured male in a sense, isn't he? No, he's um, with her. No, he's with her. Oh, is he with her? Yeah, he's with her. Yeah, oh, right. Goes, with, goes, with, goes back to school. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we have Wordsworth here, you know, roaming the hills like a partridge. But one of the things that you say <laughs> is... Um, that. That's a lovely quote. I don't know why it is. <laughs> like a partridge. So the idea of the partridge saying, right, OK, 4.30, I think I'll just go off for a walk now. and just strolling off up the Quantox. It's a beautiful <laughs> idea. <laughs> but the landscape... You know, that's a picture. One, one of the things he says is that Thanks. actually it, that. it wasn't all bucolic loveliness, that it was full of... You know, extremely poor, miserable it was people, incredibly sort of goiters poor. and so I forth. Mean, and there were there were there were famines in in Dorset and Somerset in seventeen ninety four and seventeen ninety five, and people were dying of starvation. Incredibly sort of diminished people, average height under five foot, average life expectancy under forty, eating badgers and carrion cows. If you had a if you had a cow, a milk cow, you could expect it to be milked overnight by the poor. All your peas growing in the garden would be stolen. All the plums would go. You know, it is a, a desperate, desperate 
sort of realm of poverty. And you know, they, like many of the 18, late 18th century poets, are incredibly interested in that. You know, they're interested in suffering. They want to, they want to get close to suffering. And a local historian, David Worthy, gave me a transcript of a fantastic diary by the vicar of Overstowy, the, the village next to the Netherstowy in which Coleridge was living. Very high Tory, Oxford-educated vicar who sees all this from the other end, you know, and describes almost, almost kind of one for one the people who are appearing in Wordsworth's poems appear as sort of the despicable poor in uh, Holland's diary. And so that, that I, I run that all through the book and I, I'm very happy about that, that you can actually see that these romantics are not making distress up. They're not romanticising it. They're not romanticising it. <laughs> it's true. What good is it to be? But unlike Sidney Smith, he's not doing very much about it, is he? He's, he's kind of... Mo- yeah, he's mostly he's mostly just observing, isn't he? Uh, well, he does... He has the tools which uh, his position gives him, you know. He says, you know, trust in God, king yeah. and country yeah, yeah. and everything will be well. And anywhere we've got to fight those terrible French people, you know. Mm. The country's at war. So there are, there are press gangs roaming the mm. place. I mean, there are towns in in Dorset where half the men are missing because they've been pressed into mm. into the Navy or, or the Army. And so um, it's harsh, harsh, harsh time. And the idea that we people have for the Romantics now that they're somehow wafting around mm. a, a beautiful Lake District place is is utterly wrong. It's utterly wrong to their own vision of what they were doing, apart from anything else. It was not the kind of jolly delight. It was the revelation of truths, which turns but the, me but on. The, but the truth—that's what that I the, want. The, the truth that they're revealing. <laughs> what? The truth they're revealing is so. I mean, it seems startling that they, you know, they come together. They have this sort of, if you like, a shared idea, a shared conversation about the way they're trying to move on. Out of that comes, at one end, something like the Prelude, which is you know, and the local ballads, which are so sort of stripped down and exact and, if you like, attempting to be faithful to reality. And on the other end, you get kind of Kubla Khan, Khan yeah. you know. Yeah. I mean, they, no, they seem to no, have gone off. They are, they're, not, they're not two the same. They're two interlocking opposites. And uh, so one of... I did. I wrote a. I wrote a whole thing in uh, fake eighteenth century of a, for an entry of a uh, of an astronomical dictionary published in the seventeen nineties, and the entry that I wrote was about two galaxies coming crossing the universe and coming into contact with each other and mingling and then sort of tearing themselves out the other way, transformed but utterly distinct. And I think that is what happened. You know, these two enormous souls mingled and sort of convoluted each other for a moment and then went on into the universe on different paths and uh, that is that's another way of saying that's the story of this year it's the two, it's the meeting of radically different visions that Coleridge is is the vision in a way of the enormous encompassing of everything that is a vast horizontal vision and Wordsworth is an absolutely profound plumbing of everything that is most inward. He's, a, he's the vertical vision. And it's like those two principles are crossing here. And, of course, you and Tom. You see, I love them too much. <laughs> I love not wisely, but too well. I do, that's right. All right, Tom, Adam, thank you very much for your time. Thanks, Sam. Thanks very much, Sam. 
Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. And if you did, we very much hope that you'll subscribe on your podcast provider of choice and or rate and review us. Well, especially if you liked it. If you hated it, don't, don't feel you have to review it. And equally, if there's something that you wanted to ask us about, something you think we could do better or something you enjoyed, please do send us your feedback to podcast at spectator.co.uk. Thanks again for listening and please join us for our next episode.